0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with the superstar blogger Maria Popova about growing up in Bulgaria, about what she calls combinatorial creativity, and about what it means to be a curator of information. Organizing is a form of design that I think, quote-unquote, curation is really about creating a framework for what matters and why. Here's Debbie
1: Millman. Maria Popova sorts through the amazingness of the internet and gathers it all on a happy yellow site called Brain Pickings. The site and the Twitter feed and the newsletter entices with titles such as 2,000 panels of cartographic imagination. The Cult of Lego, and 25 Saul Bass title sequences in 100 seconds. Dig in a bit, and you'll find a neuron-firing, hyperlinking, wildly creative web for the curious mind. Popova admits that she spends far too much time curating interestingness, and we're going to talk about that on today's show. Maria Popova, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for having me.
1: So I understand you have a massive culture crush on Paola Antonelli, curator of design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York.
0: That is true. Um, I don't remember when I wrote that, but in the time since, Paola and I have actually become friends and spent time together, and she has a brilliant, brilliant mind. But what I like the most about how she thinks about design and culture is that she gives this metaphor of the curious octopus, this sort of single brain that has its tentacles and in an infinite number of disciplines and fields of interest. And that's how I've always sort of thought about my own intellectual and creative curiosity and never had a way to articulate it. And she did, which I love. So you moved from
1: Bulgaria, where you were born and grew up, to the United States in 2003. And you went to school at UPenn, where you studied communications and consumer psychology. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I'd love to talk a little bit
0: about growing up in Bulgaria. What was that like? (laughs) It was um, very different. So when I was little, little... It was still communism, so deep Cold War type stuff, you know, and communism fell in the early 90s. But really growing up, my formative years were very constricted culturally, materially. um, And then the shift was really interesting, seeing a culture that has been oppressed for so many decades, trying to find its way into democracy and into sort of consumer culture, and what that's like, this sudden shift into a almost like a paradox of choice, you know. It's a very overwhelming thing. Um, so I guess that's how I became interested in this notion of, well, how do we make sense of the world through stuff and through objects and through materials, whether they're physical or metaphysical. And it's interesting
1: that... You describe the situation as overwhelming because in many ways, the amount of information that you are able to cull through, curate, and communicate at times can feel, in the best possible way, <laughs> overwhelming. I mean, I wonder if that influenced the way in which you are producing information that you share with your readers through your work.
0: Hmm. I've never thought thought about it dating that far back, I mean, in my mind, it's always been more closely related to my more recent experience in higher education here in the US and my sort of disillusionment with that. And having found a way to make, again, make sense of the world, you know, through a framework for processing information that was all my own, and it was not a institutional one. But it's interesting, I'm sure it must have something to do with the shift of going from near zero to near everything infinity
1: <laughs> it's incredible I read that when you were eight, you got your first job weaving white and red threads together into what are called martinitzas, which are what people wear in Bulgaria to symbolize peace and health. And I understand that you made them by yourself and you sold them on the street like a lemonade stand. So you were quite inventive and ambitious even at the early age of eight.
0: <laughs> um, it was just sort of a like a self-empowerment exercise i wouldn't say it was particularly creative i mean these things these little white and red things they're very common my grandmother had yarn and a lot of people made them and would give them to friends i just sort of decided, but decided to, to, sell to sell them, them. <laughs> <laughs> did you make any money i did i did <laughs> So I, and I put it towards okay, that's gonna be embarrassing. I put it towards my first John Bon Jovi cassette tape. <laughs> really? And are you still a Bon Jovi fan? Oh my god, no. <laughs> I love it. Well, that. I do have a little a little soft spot for the man. <laughs> <laughs> How can you not? He was your first.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned your grandmother. I believe she's in her nineties now, is that correct?
0: No, no. So I have two grandmothers. Um one of them has just turned Seventy-seven. Will turn seventy-seven this year, and the other one is seventy-nine. Okay, so I was a little, yeah.
1: little too little too old. I'm yeah. sorry. So your your grandmother that still lives in Bulgaria. She you have one grandmother that was really really desperate for you to become to get a master's in yeah. business administration to become an MBA. Yes. Why? Why did she want you to
0: do that? I mean, my she's great. My grandmother um, discovered the internet a couple of years ago, and now my I lost my grandfather um, a few months ago, and now it's like her way of staying connected, but she, this is from my dad's side of the family and they were always sort of the, like, intelligentsia of, you know, they they were very educated. Both of them were engineers. My grandmother has an enormous library with a few thousand books and I wow. remember she having, must have a big place to live it's not big at all but it's so it's covered it's in basically books. all the walls are bookshelves um so you got it from her too I did i i my early experience with encyclopedias I would say definitely played a role but she still has this way of thinking about what Intellectual success means, you know, and it's very much tied to traditional academia, but she's really coming around. It's It's been very interesting to observe her relationship with, you know, kind of creative actualization and, and what it means to be a fulfilled person in the world, you know.
1: And so now, from what I understand, she's the person who's monitoring you via Google Alerts.
0: Oh, yeah. She, she <laughs> follows. She keeps track of things I don't keep track of. So she's every email we're talking about other stuff. And then she would say, oh, I see you just passed so and so number of followers and so and so number of Facebook fans. And I'm like, oh, that's so
1: sweet. That's so wonderful. So does she still have any hidden hope that you'll still get
0: an MBA or is she I happy think she with does. your career? Really?
1: I think she After does. all your success, she still wants you to have that.
0: Yeah, I think she's preparing for some dystopian future where (laughs) all we can do is get corporate jobs and, you know, there's nothing else left in the world. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, dear, dear. Well, let's talk a little bit
1: about your move to the U.S. Had you always wanted to live here when you were growing up in Bulgaria? Did you think one day I want to move to the United States?
0: Not to the United States in particular, but a lot of people in Bulgaria and most of Eastern Europe harbor sort of escapist fantasies. And is that because of the communist upbringing, yeah. background, Well, history? it's just the culture there. It's very – it's going to take decades for that culture to recover from just sort of the tradition of jadedness and, and non-entrepreneurship and all these things that just are not stimulating, you know. Um, and there are some really, really smart people there, but they become disillusioned easily and a lot of them want to leave in order to – pursue what they're really passionate about. And of course, there's the other factor of every teenage girl wanting to be as far away from her mother as possible. (laughs) And so I just decided to put an ocean between us. And I, I went to an American high school in Bulgaria whose premise is that they would prepare you equally well for Bulgarian and American university curricula. But it's not at all true. I mean, we had two classes in Bulgarian, including like just literature and history. Basically, everything else was in English. We studied from college level, American textbooks for like the sciences and all that. So you're much, much better prepared to go to school here than there.
1: So you went to college here. You went to UPenn. Mm-hmm. And while you were at UPenn, you worked four jobs, another thread that takes you to your life now in terms of doing so much at once. (laughs) So you had four jobs. You worked in ad sales for your school newspaper. You were an intern for a local writer. You worked part-time at a startup ad agency. And you had a work-steady job at the Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts, this in addition to your full course load. And I read that you said it was tough, but it taught you something about what money means. And I'm wondering what it taught you.
0: It definitely made me come to terms with my own relationship with money. Uh, Saying that it taught me something about money is a little – basically, I I was not very happy in my university experience because I went to a school that, you know, most people were very wealthy and didn't have to work and just had a very different – kind of upbringing and I just was not relating to the people. And at the same time, I had to work all these jobs to basically be able to stay in school. And so I was constantly thinking about this notion of how do we define ourselves through what we have or or what we can have and what role does money play in rewarding us for work? And there was a huge disconnect between work and vocation. So there I was trying to find my calling in the world. And at the same time, working all these jobs I had pretty much, with the exception of my internship, had nothing to do with it. And having these two disparate sources of financial and material fulfillment or sort of getting by and, and the creative fulfillment and, or trying to find it and that sort of always made me wonder whether there's a better way. There's a way to have a relationship with money that is more aligned with what you want to stand for in the world.
1: When you were studying communication and consumer psychology, what was the intent? What were you thinking you might want to do at that point in your life?
0: I mean, in that period, I was definitely very interested in branding and sort of consumer communication precisely for that reason of understanding why we come to understand ourselves and understand our place in the world through the stuff that we own and that we buy and that we sort of project and I still do. I'm still fascinated by that. It's, I think it's a very interesting facet of human nature and, and sort of our conditioning and our socialization. But over time, I evolved to to kind of deviate from that path and became more interested in other things that have to do with our sort of bigger picture creative development sort of.
1: And so after college, you moved to Los Angeles.
0: Not exactly. I stayed in Philly and I worked for a year. And then in 2008, there was this big thing going on with the government, the visa gate, the the visa gate thing. Yes. So a lot of people who are in the U.S. on H 1B work visas, either applying to renew them or applying for new ones, basically about two thirds of us had to leave unexpectedly, pretty much. And, um, I was among those people. You got your application back. It, unopened, yeah, unopened completely, even though my company at the time, which was this creative startup in Philly, we had filed on the first day. We had one of the Philly's best immigration lawyers, everything in order, and it just sort of bounced back. So there I was, packing up my entire life and all my friends, everything was there. I had to leave. I went back to Bulgaria for about a year, and I just – I couldn't take it. I felt very disconnected. The the culture of it was really kind of seeping into the way that I was seeing the world. And it's very negative, and people are not happy for the most part, you know. And so I got a a job offer in L.A., which I'd always sort of resented from a distance without (laughs) ever having been. Why? I don't know. Something about it. I just never related to the the, the kind of the Hollywood vibe and all of that. But I knew that it was my way to – it was essentially an enabler to – be able to do what I do, which at that point, Brain Pickings was already, you know, had a fairly decent-sized audience. And I, I was also interested in the, the gig itself was a creative thing. And um, so I took it. I moved to L.A. and day three, it was just – I knew it. It was not my thing I, I at re- all. I
1: read that you loathed it.
0: Oh, my God. I, I don't think anyone's hated a city more in the history of hating cities than I hate L.A.
1: Really? Yeah. What do you hate most about it?
0: I mean, it's it's like a twofold thing. One is a very personal thing, which is I've resolved to, to live my life never owning or operating a car. And so I bike everywhere. And biking in L.A. is not a treat. I have been doored, hit, cursed at everything, you know, and I have the scars to prove it. And uh, it was just not pleasant. And the other thing is, the kind of urban design of it, I think, fosters a very specific kind of culture, which is a culture of entitlement in a way. And, and of. And this is obviously a very broad generalization. There are some wonderful, wonderful people that I met that are from L.A. and live in L.A. But by and large, the, the way in which we communicate who we are to others is very different. So my theory about it is that it has to do with public space. Because in a city like New York, there's so much public space that the way we reveal ourselves to other people is through these interactions. So we bump into one another, and whether we like it or not, we sort of come into contact. When a city has no public space, like no real public space at least, like L.A., these interactions happen on the freeway when you pass each other by in your car. And your only way to communicate to that other person who you are and what you stand for is— that package. So the car and the looks. And of course, it's probably a very far-fetched theory, but in my experience, it holds true in other cities as well. I find that
1: really fascinating. I'm always astounded being in the subway, especially when the cars are really packed with people, how in anywhere else on the planet Having that type of proximity to a person would be illegal if you didn't know them <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you had already started brain pickings at that point and that it already had had a fairly good readership from what i understand you started you first started curating content via a tiny text only newsletter that went out to eight people right. So so tell us about that. Tell us about how that began and and who those eight people were.
0: <laughs> so that was um I was still a junior. I actually started probably end of my sophomore year in college when I joined that creative startup in Philly. And I noticed that what my friends and coworkers there were sort of circulating for inspiration was stuff that came strictly from within the art and design industry, the communication arts annual turned manual and viral videos and things that were very kind of narrow. And I thought it was very counterintuitive to me and how I thought creativity worked.
1: In what way? Um, Why so?
0: Well, because, and this is sort of the fundamental philosophy of brain pickings, is that our ability to create, our creativity comes from all these existing pieces of stuff that we gather over the course of our lives, memories, inspiration, information, knowledge, insight, sound bites, visual memories, all these things, having them and then recombining them in new ways to create something new. So it really hinges on having a very broad and vast pool of these creative resources. And so I decided that I was going to start sending every Friday five links to five really interesting things that had nothing to do with with advertising. Right. It would be anything from like a, an obscure short film from the 30s to the latest fMRI study to a new poet from Brooklyn, you know, whatever. And How did you find those things? Just my own. I mean, it's always been, it's funny, that day when I started, it's the same sort of editorial, curatorial litmus says that I still have to this day, which is my own interests, so which is <laughs> kind of a very selfish way to do it, but it always was a learning tool for me and sort of a self-enrichment tool for me and I started by having, sharing that with eight people and now I share it with like a million people but it's Always the same, you know. And the eight people were basically the three founders and two art directors and two copywriters and myself. That was the, the agency.
1: Had they asked you to provide that type of inspiration or was it something oh, no, that no. you felt would be inspiring to them to I, broaden the I arc? thought it
0: would be. And I, I sent it to uh Steve O'Connell who was he he's the creative director and the founder who was a former Crispin guy. And I told him, Look, this is I think we need this. I think it would sort of enrich our culture. And he was like, totally go for it. And so I started doing it. And because it was a startup, they couldn't really have a designer do the design or have like a developer develop a template for the email, nothing. So it was totally grassroots. And then I noticed over time that they were the guys were forwarding those emails to friends of theirs that were not just in the creative industry, but very, very different, like college roommates and lawyers and athletes and whatever and i thought there's an intellectual market for this a creative kind of market for it and i took a night class um on top of the other things that i was doing and uh taught myself some web design and coding and uh I took it online. That was before. I mean, WordPress existed, but it wasn't mainstream. So it was hard coding, HTML. And that was in pages. 2007? Is that no, correct? No, no, so this is oh, 05. F- okay, oh, five.
1: so this was the first. So yeah. this was Brain Pickings 1.0.
0: Yeah, it was like 0.5. And then <laughs> 1.0 was the hard coded. And then I moved it to WordPress in 2007. And then slowly sort of just found its audience.
1: Now, if you weren't doing – I know that you'd be a bike messenger if you weren't doing brain pickings. I've read that. But at the time before you became more certain about the direction that brain pickings was going to take, did you have an aspiration to do something else or be something else from a vocational perspective?
0: I was always interested in in the intersection of psychology and sort of communication arts, so things that were strategic – like some sort of strategist which is what I did actually at that ad agency um in Philly. And separately from that in sort of a parallel track I've always written. So and I was in at Penn one of my minors, and it's it's a minor, but it's really much more um kind of labor intensive and load intensive than my majors was this nonfiction thing at the Kelly Writer's House, which is one of the best writing programs for undergrad in the country, and I really enjoyed it. So I always thought it would be something to do with journalism, but traditional journalism didn't quite resonate so much.
1: So from a platform perspective, you moved Brain Pickings to WordPress in 2007, and you state that making the world a better place was part of your mission.
0: <laughs> and, and I'm wondering how so. It's such a loaded phrase. You know, we have all these judgments around what it. Means to make a world a better place and what kind of person says this? I mean, this is like a pageant line, you know? Oh, no, it isn't. But I think it's it, really wonderful. <laughs> it is, but I think I am, I am an optimist and I think most people want to in some way contribute to the world in a way that makes it better and makes it richer. And for me, with brain pickings, what it has meant has been basically to make people interested in things that they didn't know they were interested in until they found them until they were and in the process of that broaden their creative and intellectual horizons and that in turn just sort of generates better thinkers better better doers and that makes for a better society better culture and a better world so i went to i
1: believe the 563rd page brain
0: pickings. Wow, I didn't realize there were that many.
1: (laughs) Uh, August 30th, 2007, your first post was about iTunes, and this was the pull quote. It said, invisible furniture, molecular ad cuisine, pricing out the art of living, 1,406 ways a photo lens can change your outlook, why the world is 774% friendlier than this time last year, and what Regis and Kelly has to do with iTunes' impending demise.
0: Oh, I remember that post, actually. Well, one um, disclaimer on that is that for the first um, year or so, I was doing this weird format of – I mean, I, all throughout, I've sort of been figuring it out as I go along. But I, what I did was I took the newsletter idea that was sort of the origin of all of this, which came out on a Friday and had multiple items in a single email. And I tried to apply it to WordPress. So basically, I would have a single post that was about – many different things and would try to like link them together and it just didn't quite work. Oh, I um, thought it was fantastic.
1: <laughs> oh, I um, love the way you connected everything.
0: I mean, one thing that I think about a lot is the shareability of things and and having people want to come back to it. And when you can't deep link to a specific item, it was just very messy, you know, the way that people would talk about it and say, oh, scroll halfway down. It's like, it didn't work. And so I eventually started doing it like you do nowadays with any regular blog where each post is about a specific thing. And then you can have in a day, you can have five different ones, but there would be different permalinks, different, you know, kind of shareable units.
1: I want to talk to you about what you call combinatorial creativity. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Is that the way you say it? Yeah. And this is what you write about it. You say your belief that creativity is combinatorial, that we create by combining and recombining existing pieces of knowledge and insight and information that we gather over the course of our lives, and that our capacity for creativity hinges on the breadth, diversity, and richness of that mental pool of resources. Why do you feel that creativity is combinatorial? Do you feel that all creativity is like that? Or do you feel that a certain kind of more modern creativity is is that way?
0: Oh, no, I absolutely believe all creativity is like that. I think every idea builds on what came before, consciously or unconsciously. Even when you think about remix culture, which we think of as something nascent, it really is not. In the Middle Ages, there were these manuscripts called Florilegia, and it comes from the Latin for flower and gather. And they were excerpts of writings that a quote-unquote author would take from existing texts and remix and reorder and edit together in a way that better explains whatever point he's trying to make, or explain a specific doctrine or idea that is already talked about in these disparate other texts. And so this kind of remix manuscript was one of the first recorded examples of remix culture, but also more importantly to me, one of the first or the first recorded example of um, curation as a form of authorship. And the interesting thing about those, by the way, is that they were the most lavish and expensive books to produce at the time. So I'm always interested in this notion of when did we we clearly used to place a lot of value on this service and this form of authorship when did we stop you know when did we start regarding it as a second rate service
1: do you feel that it's still regarded as such
0: i think there's a very divided way of thinking about it and i think things today are much more complicated because of the proliferation of platforms but also because of the way that our law is written on intellectual property. The very notion of intellectual property is so bizarre when you think about a culture that is about sharing property, owning owning ideas. It's a very kind of antiquated way to think about how we actually interact with ideas today. and Especially with open source. Exactly. Yeah. And I think um, the law is sort of Taxing our cultural understanding of what authorship is in a way that is not conducive to evolving it.
1: I want to talk about curation in general. Would you do you consider yourself a
0: curator? Well, I mean, the giant, giant disclaimer to this whole conversation is that this word anyone anyone who does. Anything remotely related to this just cringes thinking about it. It is so, <laughs> it's become vacant of meaning and it's become fluff, you know. Um, but well,
1: uh, You've said, and I love this, that you feel that every time someone uses the word curation in reference to content and publishing, an actual museum curator kills a kitten. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but it is absolutely true. So interestingly, and in in terms of sort of the power of association, I was looking at ICA's website today, and there was a piece by a curator, and she actually said that – and I I really want to get your point of view on this. She said, curators don't design. They organize. And I felt like that was a really limited – I said – I thought to myself, well, I'm going to be speaking to Maria today. I want to get her point of view on this because to me it felt like a really limited way of talking about curation. It's way more than organizing.
0: Wouldn't you say? Yes. Depend. I think a lot of it is semantics here. Okay. Um, I think what we define as organizing is going to define this argument. Okay. So organizing is a form of design. It's the architecture of thought, essentially, which is design. Organizing is not just cataloging. So it can go both ways. But I think, quote, unquote, curation is really about creating a framework for what matters and why. For what matters and why. That's beautiful. And, and building that framework on a pattern that sort of comes together over time through the curatorial process uh, that your audience intuits by way of just sticking with it. You've compared
1: curation with pattern recognition before. And I'm wondering if you can, for our listeners, define what pattern recognition is.
0: I think it's different things to different people, but to me, it is about finding threads that run across different disciplines or eras or modalities of relating to the world and pulling them together in a way that makes sense and that illuminates each of them in a way that's greater than the sum of those parts.
1: I read recently the notion that Intuition is really pattern recognition and that intuition is called over years of being able to understand possible outcomes mm. and that when you sense that something might go a certain way, it's really just reaching back into the way that you recognize patterns from your past.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's so interesting you, you bring this up. I actually... Currently, upon uh, one of my closest friends' insistence, I am rereading a book called A General Theory of Love, which is... Three... Which is one
1: of my favorite books of all time. Oh, you wrote about it yesterday.
0: Yes. I, I'm I having a hard time not writing about it every day because I've read it a few years ago when it came out, but now, due to specific uh, circumstances, I'm rereading it. And one thing they talk about in there is this notion of attractors in your brain, these neurons that are basically conditioned to respond to certain stimuli that we encode very early on and later in life, we find, we seek out situations and people and patterns that have these stimuli so that we could activate these attractor cells. And I think it's the same way that is what is true of relationships and of love is true of creativity and intellectual life as well. And the most interesting part of it is that the so-called rational mind is really there to confirm what we intuit. And we're excellent at finding evidence for what we decide we want to believe and sort of, you know, wrapping that around that soft core. That self-selection. Mm.
1: Uh, Maria and I are talking about a book called A General Theory of Love by Thomas Lewis, Fari Amini, and Richard Lannon. The interesting thing about A General Theory of Love is that it really... The title is exactly what it's about. Mm. And I think some people come to the book thinking that it's about romantic love when it's really about – why we love mm. as mammals? Why do we love? How do we love? How do we find love? Express love? It's an incredible book, and and I loved that you wrote about it yesterday in regard to whimsy of all well, things. It's
0: it's so um, related to everything else. There's one line towards the beginning of the book which has stuck with me, and I think it's brilliant and so true. And it says, "Who we become depends in part on whom we love," and that is absolutely true. Certainly in relationships, but also. Professionally, creatively, intellectually, Austin Cleon, the artist, once said, "You are a mashup of what you let into your life, and what what you love, essentially, what you care about." Now, you work alone.
1: You have on your site a couple of people that I think you say help occasionally with ideas or links. But for the most part, you work alone. And you've said that curation is seeing how various and diverse pieces of content fit together under the same taste umbrella or along the same narrative path. So the guiding principle has to be the sole storyteller with a strong point of view. And you also referenced Tina Roth-Eisenberg, who I know you are a studio mate with, um, and also, Tina is the, the founder of the great site, Swiss Miss.
0: And a former Design Matters
1: guest. Yes, she is. <laughs> she, she feels the same way. And she says that having multiple authors on a curatorial blog dilutes its authenticity. Okay, that's fine. But if you're primarily working alone, what you're doing is daunting. Three posts a day on brain pickings, all of which are thoughtfully written and researched, there's no rehashed content here. Everybody rehashes you. 60 to 75 tweets a day. These are not tweets about what you had for lunch. These are gems of interestingness, which has garnered you over 145,000 Twitter followers, and as you mentioned before, over a million page views a month on Brain Pickings. So I want to talk about your day. I want to talk. <laughs> I want to. I want to know from the minute you get up till the minute you go to sleep what Maria Popova's day is like. And I'm getting comfortable. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> it's actually quite boring, no, it to isn't. be honest. No, it isn't. Um, it can't
1: possibly be.
0: Well, let's see. I get up. Um, I do about 40 minutes um, between the time I have my first cup of green tea and the time I go to the gym. I spend 40 minutes just doing some preemptive email dodging and scheduling just a few tweets for the early morning doing some light morning reading uh, on my RSS stuff. What's
1: light morning reading to Maria Popova?
0: (laughs) (laughs) These are the more um, visual things and things that I don't have to deep process or or read intensely. So I would go through those. My um, RSS feed is how I find all my Stuff I'm very regimented about what I subscribe to. Everything's color-coded and has categories and labels and things, priority levels. And so I would do the lighter ones early on. And then I head to the gym with either a book or my Instapaper on the iPad. And after I do my weights, I get on the cardio and I I do my long-form reading. Um, so do you go to the gym every day? Oh, yeah. yeah. So you go to the At gym least every day?
1: At least once a day. Yeah. So what... so I,
0: every morning I can't, I don't drink coffee and that's my way of waking up. And uh, it's just such a centerpiece of how I get into my body and into my mind, you know. And you also meditate. I do. I do at night. How, how, um, how long do you
1: meditate for?
0: Uh, just 25 minutes.
1: Okay. So you spend about an hour and a half at the gym and another half
0: hour meditating. Yeah.
1: And yet you still manage to do everything that you do.
0: Okay. Well, not still. It's not despite that. It's because of that that I managed. Oh, see, cause I, else. when
1: people ask me how I do what I do, I say I never go to the gym.
0: <laughs> I think everything comes down to routines and comfort and what we define for ourselves as our comfort and our, our sort of grounding. And for me, that's my grounding. And for someone, it might be having an extra cup of coffee. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's totally individual. One is definitely
1: better than the other. Okay. So, so, that's the time at the gym. And what time is this generally in the, in the day so far?
0: Depends on what time I go to sleep, but usually around 8. Okay. So you're an early riser. Well, I wouldn't say. I mean, people who self-identify as early risers, in my experience, get up at like 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's true. I have just gone to bed at that point. So okay. it's like, I would not say I'm an early riser. But okay. uh, um, After that, I have my... My breakfast, which is the same thing I have had for eight years. Steel-cut
1: oats with raspberries. And I only know this because Maria told me before we started taping. (laughs) It's not that I have found that out on the internet.
0: (laughs) And whey protein. Got to feed the muscles. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, And then I sort of start with my editorial, curatorial day, which is I try to, out of the three brain pickings articles a day, I try to write, the, the format is usually one longer one and two shorter ones. And I do, to your point before, I do, quote unquote, rehash content. I think it's so important to find things elsewhere and give them voice and give them additional context and sort of root them in existing stuff from that particular archive, which is brain pickings. But I do find things elsewhere. Um, well, I don't
1: mean rehash in that you're not finding things elsewhere. I'm I'm actually – and I actually want to talk to you about the notion of giving credit where you found things. You actually lead people to – being able to investigate where you found that you're not presenting it mm. as something that you've discovered oh, first is, and foremost. Yeah. And, and and I know that that's something that you really feel very passionately about. So you're not taking credit for this information. You're allowing people to understand where it came from and where they can learn yeah. more about it.
0: This is so incredibly important, and I'm actually launching something in that vein in the next two weeks, which will attempt to do for attribution of discovery what Creative Commons did for image attribution. Because I think we have gotten to a point where this notion of information overload, you know, we hear about it all the time, and most of us, whether we choose to recognize it or not, experience it in a very felt sense every day. And in a culture that is so bombarded with information, discovery is a real form of art or authorship or service that someone performs for you to distill for you what matters. And not recognizing this form of creative labor as such is really a form of robbing the person of that labor, which is otherwise known as piracy or plagiarism. Um, so I think it's so important to create a culture where we recognize that and we honor it by always attributing discovery. Because one of the most whimsical and wonderful things about the internet is that it's this rabbit hole of discovery. You start some place familiar that you trust and then you click and you click and you click through the rabbit hole and you end up in a wonderland that you didn't even know existed. But there it is. And what keeps the rabbit hole open is attribution. So I think it's really, really important to create a culture around it.
1: So that's really what I mean about not rehashing. You're always attributing. It bothers me when I see something in the morning that you've tweeted or have written about on somebody else's site without <laughs> – when there's it's, – it's, it's really obvious where they got it's, that information. That's what I mean about yes, rehashing. Yes, it
0: happens. It
1: happens quite a lot. So tell us about this, this new venture that you are about to
0: launch. Okay. Well, it's called The Curator's Code, and it's essentially a code of suggested ethics, an effort to standardize and codify attribution for two reasons. One, because right now there isn't even enough awareness about why it's important, which is what we just talked about, but also there's some confusion about how to do it properly. And this isn't some sort of like playing internet police. It is not a top-down, here's the way to do it type of thing. But it's just saying, here's one way that it could be done that is easy and intuitive. And I'm working with Kelly Anderson, who's an amazing designer. Um, She's designing the site, and we have essentially appropriated two Unicode characters to use, just like the copyright symbol or the trademark symbol. Now we have two Unicode characters for two types of attribution, one being the via, and it's the symbol that looks like an infinity symbol almost. Nice. And via kind of connotes a more direct attribution of, I found this elsewhere, I'm reposting it here, but here's where it came from. And the other form is the hat tip, which is a more indirect form. So this is something that you saw elsewhere that gave you an idea about something either mentioned in passing or sparked it's like a story lead. You know, it's not an actual reposting. So it's associative. Yes, it, Exactly, exactly. And so the hat tip also has its own Unicode character. And we've built, there's a bookmarklet and there are other tools that basically any publisher of content can very easily and seamlessly use that system to give credit. So instead of saying via Design Observer, for example, at the bottom, it would say the character and then the link Design Observer. And the character would be hotlinked to the curator's code site itself is a way of sort of spreading the message and having people be like, oh, what's that weird symbol? Clicking it, going there, and finding out why attribution matters. And we have all these great quotes from people like Charles Eames and just famous people who have thought and talked about attribution and influence years before they were issues today as sort of validation for attribution. So, yeah. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Let's get back to your day. Oh, all, we did, all we got
1: through was the morning <laughs> 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 and a big invention. <laughs> so you've read all these things. While you were at the gym, you come back now to your apartment, to your mm-hmm. studio. Where Where do you go next?
0: Varies by day. I try to stay in my apartment for the first half of the day while I'm writing the longer of the three brain pickings articles. More often than not, it's about a book. I read a lot of books. So I need to have my book with me and I'm sort of transcribing pull quotes and looking through stuff and I need more sort of physical space and intellectual space and quiet to be able to do that. Do you read mostly
1: on an iPad now or a reader or do you? If it's
0: my choice, I would read on the iPad. Partly because of the highlighting, which is really important to me. Partly because I read at the gym and on the train and places that a book is not convenient. But a lot of the books that I write about are design books and screen technology is still sort of catching up with the richness of those things. So I, I understand, you know, the trade-offs. So for some of them, I can't really, I've been known to schlep around Manhattan with a, thousand page hardcover giant design book because there's no other time to go through it like a bicycle <laughs> so you come back to your studio you do a lot of the reading and then i, I finish the first article i pre schedule the tweets for the second third of the day so that's 20 plus tweets yeah Yeah, which are based on stuff that I've read the night before that I've read at the gym in the morning. I read my RSS feed there as well when I'm done with my long form, whatever I'm reading.
1: How do you make a decision about what to either write about or tweet about? What is the distinction between the three pieces a day that you're writing or the 60 Mm, plus tweets? That's
0: that's a very good question. Um, The background on it is that I started Twitter as an offshoot of the editorial property, which is the site, Brain Pickings. And originally for the first, um I want to say three or four years, until 2010, really, Brain Pickings was one item per day, five days a week, so just five items. And I was coming across so much more that was interesting in the same way, but I just didn't have time to write it up and, you know, all of it. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to start a Twitter feed for the existing readers to follow along. It was like the extras on a DVD, you know. But what ended up happening was the reverse, so. The Twitter feed took on a life of its own, had its own audience, which discovered brain pickings through it, you know. But to this day, I think Jeff Jarvis said it best. He said, do what you do best and link to the rest. And I think this is such a good way to really capture the litmus test. You know, if I have something to add to the item that is enriching it in some way or connecting it to other things that is either historical context or – relating it to something from another discipline or pulling back from something I've written about in the past, having something more meaty than just the thing itself, then I'm going to write about it in brain Pickings, So otherwise, I'm just going to share whoever had something about it. And so then that's the afternoon.
1: That's the afternoon. <laughs> yes. I'm, keeping, I'm keeping us. I want to know right, every minute. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: I am really, really oh. interested and fascinated about how you managed to do this all.
0: Then... It varies by, by day, but generally speaking, every evening, um, this is kind of a chronic problem. I'm double and triple booked to different events that I have, either meetings or book launches or events, conferences, things that, like friends stuff that I want to support and a lot of events, you know, in the evening. And then when I get home, I would do my meditation and I would write the other two pieces for the next day. I publish on a schedule, so I publish every morning at 8, 8.30, and 9 a.m. Eastern, and so I have to write everything day before. And when I'm done with that, I try to respond to a few more emails. I pre-schedule the tweets for the next morning, and uh, that's about it.
1: You've written quite a lot recently about Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, and you've written about what the internet is doing to our brain. And I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about Mm -hmm. what you feel the internet is doing to our brain.
0: I actually, I have not written a lot about it. I have mentioned him reluctantly in my violent disagreement with his thesis. First of all, the most important thing is that we don't understand the human brain enough to make claims that are this specific about what part is being activated by this specific media stimulus. I mean, there's so much misunderstanding about neuroscience. And I, in my undergrad, which is not to say I'm any sort of expert very far from that, but I did a fair amount of neuroscience and psychology to know at least some basics about what is reasonable to expect that we understand. And to this day, I read a lot of neuroscience journals and things that scientists are doing in the lab. And I'm always alarmed by sort of popular science writers and commentators drawing conclusions that are so much more causal than we have evidence for. So Carr, I think he is trying to make a cultural and philosophical argument about the harmfulness of the Internet to our ability to concentrate. But he is using as backup a lot of science that is out of context and not fully baked pretty much. Uh, we're not fully integrated with what he's saying, rather than treating it as an opinion thing, he's treating it as a scientific thing. And that really bothers me. In this whole conversation about what the internet is doing to our brain, the big missing piece that so many people are ignoring, and, and that's true about so much in life, actually, I think, is the notion of choice. You know, We choose what we engage with. We choose what we do with our lives. We choose. And it's not stuff being done to us. It's us as conscious, rational agents choosing things to do. And that's what we should be talking about. What are we choosing? Clay Johnson wrote a much more intelligent book on the same issue called The Information Diet, which just came out recently. And it's it has a much more grounded way of looking at it, saying, hey, we decide, we choose. Our brain is sort of the byproduct of the choices that we make. And here's how we can make better choices rather than sulk about what the internet is doing to our brain.
1: Well, what I find so interesting about that argument is, aside from the notion of choice, I feel that we've never had in our culture, in our history as a species, as much access to information as we do now. And I want to give you appropriate credit in the knowledge that I have now about what Socrates said, that he famously lamented that writing was going to make us stupid because it would eliminate the need to remember things. Mm. And I think that if we are constantly afraid of our future, it prevents us from being able to take advantage of the opportunities that come along with the future. Mm. The, The last thing I wanted to ask you about is... How you finish your day. So, you talked about how you pre schedule your writing, you pre schedule the tweets. When do you know that your day is done?
0: On <laughs> my three Alarms, three sequential alarms to go to bed, go off in sequence at 3 a.m. And I know that I should really go to bed. <laughs> so you really have three sequential alarms? Yeah. So tell me about that, because that I, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. I keep everything in my Google Calendar, including my editorial calendar. So all the content for two months ahead, I have scheduled in Google Calendar, all my meetings, everything. And I have set up reminders for certain things, one of which is the go-to-bed thing. And I have three of them that, you know, pester me in every possible way. Is it hard for me. you to go to bed?
1: I can't imagine that you resist the day ending.
0: Physiologically, I'm ready three hours before I actually do it. But it's just there's so much to get done, and I, I just don't like dropping balls. I just don't, don't like it. It just bothers me. And so I try to do as much as I can so I don't feel like I'm dropping balls. Yeah.
1: Well, Maria, you are a force of nature. You are a force of information. And I think that you are able now to influence and inspire an entire generation of people that are hungry for the information that you're helping us find. Thank you thank for being you, on Daddy, Design thank Matters. Thank you so much. To learn more about Maria Popova, visit brainpickings.org or subscribe to Popova's feed at at brainpickings plenty of great content there. She's probably tweeted about three times since she's been here today. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rady Ortica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.